Really excited to have Nick Thompson join us today to talk about the danger of pride and the need to grow downward. Thanks for joining us again, Nick. It's great to be with you again, David. Oh, thank you. Last time we spoke, we were with Joel BK, and I remember you were just about to join a new church as pastor. How's that been going? It's been going really wonderful. Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's already been two whole years since we last talked, but the Lord's been doing a, a lot of exciting things here in Chattanooga, and it's been a tremendous blessing to, to be a pastor. Oh, excellent. That's really good to hear, Nick. You you start your new book, Growing Downwards, by retelling the advice that you were once given um, when you left seminary. Pride is the number one enemy of a pastor at every stage of the game. As we're going to be talking a lot about pride um, today, help us define clearly what pride is and why that statement can be true for any vocation. Mm. Pride is a it's a difficult thing to to define. I was this morning I was in my devotions. Uh, one of my readings was in uh, Psalm 131, where David essentially professes that he's not proud. And uh, and he says, Lord, my my heart is not lifted up. And uh, that gives us a sense into what uh, pride is in and of itself. It's a heart or a, uh, an inward disposition that is lifted up or haughty. And, uh, and I call it the, the haughty disposition of an idolatrous self-perception. So when we're talking about pride and humility, we're talking about a heart disposition that is brought about by how we perceive ourselves. And pride is a disposition brought about by seeing ourselves as if we are God and, uh, and essentially seeking to dethrone God and uh, set ourselves up in his place. Yeah. You just mentioned humility, and that's often seen as the opposite of pride, isn't it? Define that for us, Nick. So if, if pride is the, the haughty disposition of an idolatrous self-perception, then humility is uh, the downward disposition, the, the lowly spirit uh, that's brought about by a Godward self-perception. And so humility has its seat in the heart or in the affections and and it is, as the, the ESV often translates it, the English Standard Version, I think helpfully translates a number of passages, uh, describing it as a lowly spirit. And this is brought about when we see ourselves rightly before God as our creator and post-fall as our redeemer. Yeah. One of the, the things that I love that you've written in your book is that spiritual growth is not an ascent, it's a descent. Talk us through that truth, Nick. Hmm. So it, it really, I, I, it depends on how you, how you look at, at spiritual growth. There's different ways of looking at it. And I talk about three, three ways, three directions, really, that we ought to be growing. And they, they happen simultaneously. The focus of, of my book is humility. So uh, that's, a, that's growing downward uh, towards ourselves with relation to ourselves. But uh, we also need to be growing upward in fear toward God and outward in love toward others. Uh, but yeah, one of the things that I was just really wanting to, to stress in, in my book is, is that uh, true spiritual growth is, is not 
um, growing in in prominence and and power and and all the rest. But uh, but it is growing to to recognize who we are as lowly creatures and as lowly sinners before our great and and glorious God. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it, Nick? The, the best-selling books, even the best-selling so-called Christian books are, are saying the exact opposite, aren't they, often to, to what you've written, Nick? We we live in a generation of looking in the mirror and report, repeating positive affirmations and telling ourselves how great we are, wanting to fill ourselves to overflowing with ourselves. What Why is this so dangerous? That's a that's a good question. It's it's ultimately so dangerous because uh, you go that way and you lose your soul. And uh, and that is because to to look into the mirror to find yourself or to, as we oftentimes hear it today, to look within to find yourself. The self-made self is is a self that has uh, relegated God at best to be irrelevant that I don't need God to understand who I am. I don't, I don't need God to tell me who I am. I can decide for, for myself who I am, uh, what my identity is, what my, my purpose is, what my destiny is. And, and that is the, the road to uh, spiritual self-destruction and ultimately eternal damnation. And, uh, and so there, there are many manifestations of that. I mean, even as you you alluded to, Christian versions of that, that to one degree or another can be more or less dangerous. Uh, but but ultimately, because we are creatures, we have to begin with our Creator in order to understand who we are. And if we don't. Uh, we're we're going to be uh, left confused, left hungry, left wanting, and ultimately uh, left uh, with without God and without hope. Yeah. One of the factors as to why many people do not humble themselves before God is that they do not fear Him nor appreciate the holiness of God. Tell us about that, Nick. And what does a healthy fear of the Lord look like? So I mentioned that that upward growth and fear towards God and its relation to the downward growth towards ourself and humility. And it's interesting when you when you study the Proverbs in particular, uh, but other other passages of Scripture uh, as well, that the the Proverbs use uh, what in uh, Hebrew poetry is called synonymous parallelism to draw a direct parallel between the fear of God and humility. A number of times Solomon does this uh, so much so that that some scholars have said that they are one in the same grace. Now I think they are two distinct graces: the fear of God and humility. But uh, but we can't grow in one without growing in the other. And uh, probably my favorite definition of the fear of God comes from uh, John Murray, a uh, Presbyterian theologian. He defines humility as the all-controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God and the profound reverence that that elicits or draws forth. And uh, so, so essentially, the, the fear of God is, is seeing God for who he is, savoring him for who he is, uh, reckoning in the depths of our souls with who he is. And that's, that draws forth a worshipful, reverent, joyful 
uh, fear towards him. It's, it's not not being afraid of him, not drawing back from him, but it actually draws us towards him in a loving communion bond. And uh, and so as we grow upward in that all controlling sense of his majesty and holiness, uh, we, we also grow downward in the all controlling sense of our creatureliness and and corruption. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you, Nick. We we live in an age, don't we, where it's popular in some circles to not talk about sin. But why is this so counterproductive, Nick? And why is it critical that we know of our spiritual bankruptcy and hopeless condition in sin apart from Christ? Because apart from an understanding of the, the bad news, we won't have any sense of our need of, of the good news. And so, I mean, you, you see the, the greatest example of this in, in Scripture. Well, there's an, a number of examples. You have Isaiah uh, chapters 1 through 39, just really hammering home to the Israelites their, their sinfulness and their folly and the exile and judgment that's going to come on them because of it. And then chapters 40 through uh, 66, focusing on gospel and salvation predominantly. You have it as well in Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, where he spends those first three chapters just opening up to us the heinousness of our sin so that we would see our need of the righteousness of Christ, the sanctifying grace of Christ, and the hope of future glory with Christ. And so the, the entirety of our faith as, as Christians uh, doesn't make any sense without uh, grappling with the fact that we are inherently and pervasively corrupt sinners by nature who need, we need a savior. Yeah, yeah. We are creatures and our holy God is God. We have many limitations that you speak about in your book. And um, tell us about those, Nick. Yes. So one, one of the, the desires that I had in this book was to root humility predominantly in our creatureliness and not first and foremost in our corruption. And, uh, and that's, that's important because uh, the, the greatest reason being because our, the chief example of humility is Christ himself. And if we say that humility is, uh, is a response of the heart to recognizing our own sinfulness before a holy God, and it is in part for post-fall sinners, um, but if, if that's all that humility is, well, then Christ could never be humble. And so one, one of the burdens of the book was to show how uh, humility precedes the fall. And humility is the creature recognizing his creatureliness before the, the creator. And, uh, and that means that uh, contrary to God, who has, has no limitations, he's infinite and in power and glory. He's not confined by space or time or any such thing. Uh, we as creatures are. And, and God has, has designed us in that way, uh, really to just give us constant reminders of our creatureliness and, and to, to keep us low before him. So, so one of those obvious limitations is uh, with, with regards to, to energy and, uh, and the fact that, that you and I both, David, we are, are going to tonight. I don't know what time it is there right now, uh, but but here in, in a few hours, we're, we're going to uh, be putting our, our pillow, our heads on our pillows and, and sleeping for, you know, seven to eight hours, hopefully. And um, that, that is a, a, 
really humbling reality when you think about it. So we, limitations with regards to energy, that's also related to limitations with regards to time. When you, when you think about the fact that we're temporal, we're time-bound creatures, I oftentimes find myself wishing I had so much more time in my day so I could do all the things that I want to do and think that I, I need to do. And uh, and really, time is is a blessed thing because uh it reminds me that i'm not god <laughs> and uh and that i do have have limitations and then when you when you add the the energy limitation to it and you recognize that one third of our days are spent uh laying on our backs in the dark in bed utterly helpless uh unconscious or at least subconscious it's it's a, a very very humbling reality. So so those are a couple of the limitations. I mean, there's there's many obviously, um, but just different different ways that uh, our creatureliness beckons us to to have a lowly spirit before our God yeah. and to really revel so in greatness. So helpful. I'd never considered that before, Nick. But yeah, so so helpful. What is the risk of having a small view of God and a big view of people? There's uh, <laughs> again, yeah, a lot of a lot of risk to that. Ultimately, uh, that if if that is the the predominant disposition of of our souls, uh, we're I would argue lost. And uh, so all of us struggle with uh, the fear of man to one degree or another, struggle with exalted views of ourselves and exalted views of other people and, and small views of God. And that's really what the what salvation and sanctification are about is uh, is changing that, transforming us so that we're seeing God as he is and then seeing ourselves and seeing others rightly. But ultimately, when we have a, a high, a, a big view of others, it, uh, it keeps us from being able to love them. And uh, I don't think we oftentimes think of it in that way. But really, uh, when we talk about the fear of man, uh, when, when we fear other people, uh, when when they've become big in our lives and we're finding our sense of self and our sense of worth and what they think about us, how they talk about us or what, um, whether they, they want to hang out with us or whether they're willing to go out on a date with us or whatever it might be, um, that uh, ultimately it, it's going to keep us from actually being able to pour ourselves out for their sakes and in, in self-giving love. And so, so the fear of man, Proverbs says, is a snare. It's a, it's a snare. It keeps us from loving God. It keeps us from loving other people. And it ultimately makes us miserable. It's a, it's a miserable way to live. And I know from, from personal experience that uh, to to find my identity in the creature instead of in in God is uh, it's a miserable existence because I'm always changing. Other people are always changing. So one day people love me and I, I feel great and it's going good. The next day, you know, someone sends me a, a nasty email about my sermon from Sunday and and I'm just torn apart and on the floor, uh, just a mess. Instead of God, uh, who who never changes, his heart towards his people never changes, having that 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 constancy there. And so, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of 
of issues with when uh, people are big and God is small, but those are, those are just some of the initial yeah. things that come yeah. to mind. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Well, you've mentioned some already, Nick, um, but what's up, what are some common traps that we can fall into when it comes to pride? I know that you share some personal examples in your book. Yes, I do. And, um, and there's many, many more that, <laughs> that I could have, could have shared. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll give you two. And I think um, it's, it's helpful when, when we're thinking about pride to recognize we oftentimes can think of pride in terms of if we were to use the, the language of modern psychology, we think of it as high self-esteem, having this, um, this over uh, self-confidence and self-assertiveness and this, that, and the other. We, we meet people like that that are overly abrasive and just um, really uh, think a lot of themselves. And we think, man, that, that person is, is proud. But uh, pride can, uh, can manifest itself equally in what, uh, what is oftentimes called low self-esteem. And... Um, and so I'll, I'll just give you two examples. One, as it manifests itself in my own life with regards to high self-esteem and the other low self-esteem. And I find in my own soul that it's not uh, that for me, the struggle with those two things is it's not like, oh, I only struggle with high self-esteem or I only struggle with low self-esteem. I, I find it's just a fluctuating back and forth between the two when I'm not being humble. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah. so in our, in our consumeristic age, uh, it's, it's very common for people in America and in, in the UK, I would presume as well, to root our identity in stuff, in, in the things that we have, and to, to either uh, be uh think ourselves really great because of that or to be really down on ourselves because of that either way it's an idolatrous self-perception rooting our identity in the creation instead of in in the creator um so with regards to high self-esteem one of the things that uh the lord has showed me that i write about in in the book quite embarrassing actually is uh is with regards to my car now i don't i don't drive a super fancy car it's not like i'm cruising around in a maserati or anything like that uh fairly fairly simple car but it's a it's a newer car and it's a reliable car and uh and i found myself a couple years ago i was um driving on on the highway and I was passing this car much older than mine, much rustier than mine, much slower than mine. And, and I, I realized in the moment something strange was going on in my heart that I had this subtle sense of superiority rising up within me. Ultimately, and this is crazy, but ultimately because the piece of metal that I was sitting in was, was newer, was faster, it was shinier. And uh, and so so I was uh, subtly operating under the conviction that I was uh, a, more of a person, uh, that I had more worth, more value uh, because of the vehicle that I I happened to be driving and happened to own. Um, so so high self-esteem there uh, brought about from an idolatrous self-perception rooting my identity in creation. 
the the low self esteem. So so ever since we we moved to Chattanooga, I and my my family we've lived in a home up on Lookout Mountain, and um, and it's a less than an ideal home in a in a number of different ways. It's it's not not impressive. It's not uh, pretty in in any regard. It's a it's a double wide trailer essentially. <laughs> and uh, and I when when we first moved in and started having people over. Uh, for those first number of months, I would struggle every time a new person was coming over to our home. What are they going to think? What are they going to think of the house? What are they going to think of me because of my house? And uh, and I just began to recognize I'm finding my sense of worth, my sense of value in the, the home that I live in. Now, the reality is none of my people care what kind of home I live in. They're coming to spend time with my family and to enjoy fellowship, not because we have some spectacular house. Uh, but, but for me, it was an, an idolatrous identity. And the Lord very graciously showed that to me and continues to, to work in me through that. So yeah, there are just any number of ways that that pride can work itself out in our lives. But those are, those are two examples from my own walk. That's really helpful. I'll quickly move on, and unless you ask me uh, for some of my examples, Nick. If we, <laughs> if we're all honest, even when we uh, do some good deed that externally looks impressive to anyone that gets to hear about it, we can't help but taint it with our prideful hearts, can we? For example, we live in a generation where we've all seen those videos of people recording themselves giving money or food to a homeless person so they can share it on social media. What's gone so wrong with us, Nick? Why are we like this? Well, we're like that because of pride, ultimately, <laughs> and uh, and really the, the yeah the problem isn't anything new. So you see uh, Jesus addressing the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the fact that when they were giving or uh, praying or fasting, that they were doing these things in order to get the attention and the affirmation and the applause of of other people. And uh, Jesus essentially in all three of those scenarios says, uh, when, you, when you do this, if, if you really want to fast and you really want to pray and you really want to give, uh, do it for the, the glory of God. Do it for the smile of God. Do it because you fear God, because you love God and you want to you please him not to, to get the, the applause of others. So, so the problem's been around since uh, the Garden of Eden, ultimately. Um, but social media has, I think, uh, added a new dimension to it in that now uh, we have platforms. It's really remarkable. Never in the history of the world has this been possible. Uh, but we now have platforms whereby we can parade these things before the world at a click of a button. We don't we don't have to uh, have to gather a crowd to to come to us. We we can literally uh, post things online that reach the world. And um, and so we need to really, I think, think very carefully about that and um and be uh, very watchful. Yeah, yeah. You've touched on it already about Christ's example um, of what it is, is, is to be humble. How did Christ model it? Give us some examples of it, Nick, through scripture. That's a great question. And yeah, 
Uh, Christ was the perfect example of humility because uh, humility is really the creature living as he ought to before God and Christ, uh, the son of God, as he became man, taking to, him, to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, he, he demonstrated in his humanity, perfect humility. And, and you see that in his, his relation to God. Uh, you see it, for example, in uh, his his obedience to God and his submission to God, even all the way to the, the death of the cross. So that's what Paul in that famous passage on humility in Philippians 2 really draws out that uh, the, the greatest demonstration of Christ's humility was was his willingness to to obey his father all the way to to the cross and uh and that, that is a demonstration of humility, not only as Christ relates to his father, but also as he relates to his people, because he's demonstrating that he considers them more important than, than himself and, and is uh, willing to pour himself out for, for their sake. So, um, so, yeah, you see it in his relationship to God by way of obedience, also by way of prayer. He was a man entirely dependent upon God. He could do nothing apart from his father, and he relished in communion with his father above everything else. So you see him sneaking away, even sometimes all the way through the night, just to enjoy the, the presence of his father. That's humility. And uh, and then you see it in his uh, relationship with his disciples and with those whom whom he's ministering to uh, that uh, he he wasn't he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty and serve to to touch the leper to to heal the sick to to feast with tax collectors and prostitutes and and sinners he he was a man that was. Um, freed from an inordinate love of, of self uh, so that he was able to turn outward in, in holy love towards other people. Yeah. How should humility shape our prayer life, Dick? Humility should shape our prayer life by driving us to prayer. So if, if we're humble, we will recognize that uh, we, we can do nothing uh, apart from from God, uh, especially uh, when when we're talking about our, our own personal sanctification or uh, the the sanctification of of other believers in the church or the the advancement of of the gospel in the world. Uh, as as I think about my calling as a pastor, I just recognize that everything that needs to be done as a pastor. I can't do. <laughs> uh, I I can't uh, convince anybody of the truth. I can't regenerate anyone. I can't sanctify anyone. I can't bring a backsliding person back uh, to uh, a whole-souled faith in in Christ and obedience to Christ. I mean, you just you start going going down down the list, and uh, you just recognize really really quickly that Jesus was spot on when he said, "Apart from me, you can do nothing." <laughs> and um, and so when when we recognize that, uh, it's going to press us into prayer as a father, as I'm parenting my children. I just I recognize. I can't do what needs to be done. 
God's got to do it. And yes, he uses means to bring about those ends. So I need to be faithful as a father and raising my, my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But but it drives me to prayer because he ultimately has to do the work. The one who plants and waters, they are nothing. It's God that gives the growth. And uh, so it drives us to prayer in that way. I think it also drives us to prayer uh, because humility recognizes that we are entirely dependent upon God for our satisfaction, for our joy, for our delight. And thus the humble crave communion with God. They, they want deeper fellowship with the Lord. And, uh, and, and the, the more we grow downward in humility, uh, the, the more we're going to, going to want to know our God. And, um, and so, so it, it drives us to prayer, but, uh, but it also shapes our, our praying in that um, because humility is rooted in, in a proper view of God and a fear of God and a big view of God, it leads us to pray big prayers, prayers that would be impossible for uh, a mere human being to to bring about and um and and this is something that that I've been really challenged in as as a pastor and have sought to instill in my people over the past 2 years is don't, don't don't settle for small prayers and small petitions but pray big prayers and expect god to answer as as we pray in faith and in accordance with his word and in in the name and in dependence upon christ our mediator and and so so it changes uh, the shape and the scope of our petitions but it, it also makes makes our praying um really saturated with the glory of god so we're not just asking god for things uh, but we are adoring God. We're giving thanks to God because we recognize everything we have comes from him. It's what do we have that we haven't received? If we've received it, then why do we boast as if we haven't received it? Well, we don't boast. Instead, we give thanks because we're we're humble by God's grace. And um, and so, yeah, humility is is vital uh, for uh, a, a healthy prayer life and really a, a number of authors make make this point that uh, that pride, the the chief manifestation of pride, is prayerlessness. So if you want to know whether you're proud or not, one one of the best places to look is is your prayer life. Yeah, so good. When we're sharing the gospel with someone, their posture and how they uh, view uh, the gospel is critical, isn't it? Um, good soil tends to be a humble heart, whereas someone that hears the gospel and is unmoved tends to be full of self. What are some tips for helping someone see this when working in evangelism? It's a good question. And it's a, it's a very good point that, uh, yes, what what is needed for, for someone to believe and to receive the gospel is for the Holy Spirit to work humility in them, to give them a sense that they are creatures before God, and that as those who are fallen in Adam, they are corrupt uh, before God, and thus they desperately need Christ. <laughs> they desperately need the Savior, the Redeemer that that uh, God has has provided. So until the Lord works humility in the heart through uh, the, the preaching of the word, uh, we won't see people coming to to faith in the Lord. I, I think one of the most effective uh, ways that um, that I've found apologetically and evangelistically to to speak to people about the gospel 
especially in in our age, um, is to to help them to see the dead end street of pride, um, to help them to to really essentially. So I've been very influenced, and I quote him a number of times in the book. And really, the book is, um, in certain senses, a, a dumbed down version of a lot of what this man has written. Uh, but Cornelius Van Til, a uh, Christian apologist, and he wouldn't have considered himself a philosopher, but but he he was and um, brilliant man, and um, he has shaped my thinking considerably with regards to evangelism and apologetics and humility, and uh, and really his methodology is when when you're speaking to an unbeliever, you want to get onto their turf and show them how their worldview ultimately self-destructs, how it's ultimately full of inconsistency and, and leads to death. And then having done that, invite them onto the, the Christian worldview and show them how it alone can make sense of the world in which they live. And, um, and I think that's a helpful way when we're thinking about pride and, and humility, um, to take, for example, um, the, the LGBTQ movement, which prides itself in being prideful. So we have Pride Month and Pride Festivals and Pride this and that. It's really quite striking that they're calling it exactly what it is. Uh, the, the haughty disposition of an idolatrous self-perception. And, um, and if you look at uh, secular statistics, even, so just, just take... Um, for example, uh, the, really the most extreme in the LGBTQ uh, movement, the, the T, uh, those who embrace a, a so-called transgender identity. When you start looking at the suicide rates among those who, who embrace that, that kind of identity, the, the depression rates, uh, the, the, it is, it is through the roof, just astronomical. And, um, we, we need to be, uh, drawing upon that as Christians, I believe, and drawing upon the, the stories of many who have gone that way and, um, and found it to be empty and ultimately, um, lethal, destructive, and we need to be sharing those stories and sharing those statistics and, and helping people to see that when they reject God and when they reject his design and his word, and when they seek to construct a self-made self, uh, that, uh, that it, it leads to destruction. And, and to show them that that's precisely what the, what the scriptures teach, and then to show them the, the life and joy and blessedness that, that comes from uh, a humble frame of heart that is receiving and resting upon Christ alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. Yeah. Sometimes as Christians grow in knowledge, this can show up in becoming puffed up and prideful. How, how do we avoid this? Yes. So... This was actually uh, a large reason why I ended up preaching a sermon series on humility right when I got to the church here in Chattanooga. So it's the first thing I preached on in our morning uh, worship was a series on humility that the book really was birthed out of. And, uh, 
And the, the reason was because our, our denomination, the denomination that I minister in, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, it was birthed out of a, uh, a rejection of theological liberalism. And uh, so you, you can even see it in our name, Orthodox, that we we pride ourselves in, in having sound theology, right thinking about God that accords with with his word. And um, and sadly, that can oftentimes lead us to being puffed up and uh, it ought to obviously be the opposite. I mean, it, it's striking to me, and and this has been pointed out a number of times by a number of different men that a proud uh, Calvinist is a is a contradiction of terms, because if we really believe in the depths of our souls that God is this great, exhaustively sovereign, majestic God that we proclaim as uh, Bible believing Reformed Christians. If, if we really believe in things like total depravity, if we really believe, uh, you know, you just start start going down the list, all these different truths that, that we hold to as Christians and that we fight for doggedly. Uh, if these things are really getting into our souls, they're going to produce a profound humility. And that was it's actually one of the, the main burdens of, of the book, really the the book is a primer on reformed theology uh, and seeking to show how every aspect of our theology should be promoting and producing within us the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception, that it should be producing within us humility. And if it's not, we need to step back and uh, and ask ourselves some hard questions, because there's one thing it's one thing to know about God, but it's an entirely different thing to know God. And um, and if we merely know about God and that knowledge about God isn't translating into an experiential acquaintance with the living God that is producing humility, then uh, we're we're in a very, uh, very bad place. Yeah. Yeah. The Christian life can often be discouraging and sometimes encouragement can be a like a drink of ice cold water in the desert. How should we interact with encouragement in a healthy way? It's very hard to do that, at least for me, uh, because uh, I, I think that all of us are are easily puffed up by by encouragement and and can take it and and uh, use it in a way that it's it's not intended to to be used. And um, so one of the the verses which I I quoted just a few minutes ago that I'm I'm constantly quoting to myself as a pastor when you know the little old lady comes up to me after uh, worship and tells me that was the best sermon she's ever heard or you know wh whatever the 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 compliments might might be to uh to be continually telling myself uh first corinthians 4 7 what do you have that you haven't received if you've received it why do you boast as if you haven't received it so so my my gifts um, as a pastor, God has gifted me in a particular way, and it, it's not 
it's not wrong. In fact, it's it's humble <laughs> to recognize the gifts God has given us and to use those gifts in the service of others. Uh, but we have to keep in mind always that they're gifts, yeah. that yeah. they're things that have been given to us graciously. We didn't earn them. We don't deserve them. Uh, they're not innate to us. God has bestowed them upon us. And if that's the case, then all the glory goes goes to him. And so um, I, I've been slowly learning this lesson, and uh, and it's it's hard to know how far along I really am in learning this. I don't think very far, but um, but I'm beginning to learn how to how to take uh, encouragement and um, and not just kind of you know flippantly a false humility kind of thing like oh no no like all the glory to God uh, but to, to actually receive and say thank you thank you for that that encouragement I I really appreciate that and and to to praise God that He is using me to to help someone or whatever the encouragement might be that that He He's at work and He's ultimately the one responsible for that. On the other side of the same coin, what are some tips on encouraging someone with genuine love and support without wanting to flatter them or unintentionally leading them into pride? Yeah, that is, uh, that's difficult. I, I think um, going along with what, what I just said about uh, receiving that encouragement from others and having a God-exalting reception of that to to be seeking to speak encouragement that is intentionally exalting God, not not in a kind of superficial way, but but in in a genuine way that um, for for example, um, you know someone uh, your your pastor. These are the kind of things that. I think about as a pastor, but um, let's let's say your your pastor uh, preaches uh, a message that uh, just particularly impacts you, and after after the fact, instead of saying, "Pastor, that was that was awesome, man, you're like the next Charles Spurgeon," uh, saying in, in something along the lines of, "Wow, I was I was really struggling with this this past week, and God just." used you to to speak to me right where I needed to be spoken to. And I, I just wanted to, to encourage you that, that God is using you. Uh, yeah. do, do you see the difference there. One, one is, wow, you're awesome. <laughs> and the other is, wow, God is awesome. And you're the instruments yeah. that yes, he's using to advance his purposes. Yeah, yeah. Um, how important is it is to fellowship with other Christians who will tell you the truth about ourselves, even when it may be painful to hear? Very, very vital. And yeah, I have a whole section on uh, the church in in the book, uh, what I call ecclesiastical humility, because really uh, the church is uh, the the context in which God has designed humility to be cultivated. So humility is not... Uh, a me and God kind of thing. It's an us and God thing. And, uh, and what you're talking about there, criticism, rebuke, it's actually what we talked about last time, last time we spoke, Um, that that is a key component of, uh, of us growing to, to have a proper perception of ourselves before God that results in, in a lowly spirit. And, um, 
And it, it is also a means by which our grip upon Christ uh, tightens and by which we, we see our need of him that, that I come to recognize over these past two years. Um, I've, I've had my, my fair share of, of criticism come my way, constructive criticism, right criticism. And I've come to see I'm not a perfect pastor, <laughs> like, in case anyone's wondering. Um, I need Jesus. He's the perfect shepherd. He, he is my righteousness. And, uh, and that's the boast of humility. Humility's boast is I, I am left to myself a radically corrupt creature. And, and my hope is in uh, the, the, the God who became a creature and suffered for my corruption so, so that I might not, so that I might be uh, delivered, so that I might be saved and, and ultimately be made humble. And so, so criticism is, is a way of driving, driving us to Christ. And we need to see it as such and, and not be afraid of it. I think also along with that, one of the things that I've been really seeking to cultivate in our congregation in the past two years which I think is more rare in reform circles, unfortunately, is uh, holy vulnerability with one another in our fellowship, con- confessing our sins and our struggles to one another, asking one another for prayer, not putting some kind of religious facade on. Uh, humility, it, uh, it recognizes that it, along with everybody else in the room, doesn't have it all figured out. And and that's okay because Jesus does. Yeah. Nick, um, thank you so much for your time. I always enjoy speaking with you. Before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I would just uh, want to say, David, that um, really just want to want to encourage the the listeners to to find increasingly their their identity in Jesus Christ and um to to recognize that that true life true joy true satisfaction true fulfillment uh eternal life it it's found in uh in knowing who we are as we're related to our god through Christ and uh, so, so one of one of the things that I'm constantly telling myself is just this very simple uh, sentence: "I am an eternally loved son of God, justified and sanctified in Christ Jesus, to the praise of my Father's glory." And uh, to the degree that you and I live from out of that identity, uh, we will be humble. We will be joyful we will we will know life and uh and so let's let's press on to know to know christ and and to find our identities in him thank you nick wherever you're listening or watching this interview we're gonna have a link to nick's new book growing downwards in the comments below nick thanks again for your time really enjoyed it thank you so much david 